Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Today, I'm talking with Susie Kerr, Chief Economist at the Environmental Defense Fund. Susie's areas of expertise include emissions pricing, climate change policy, land use, and most relevant for this podcast episode, international climate cooperation. Susie originally hails from New Zealand, where she helped found MOTU, an economics and public policy research institution serving the needs of Kiwi decision makers. Susie is my second guest in our three-part series on COP26. She'll be sharing her reflections on the action to date with a particular lens on developing country interests. I'm sure you'll enjoy both her insight and her delightful accent as much as I do. Stay with us. Good afternoon, Susie. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to, to talk with me today and to reflect on this, this first week of the COP. Kia ora, Kristen. It's uh, such a pleasure to join with you today. <laughs> Good. Well, uh, I offered only a very brief introduction um, at the beginning. And so I wanted to, yeah, just hear a little bit more about you and your background before we turn to the COP. Why don't you tell our listeners and myself, uh, you're certainly known to the RFF family, but it'd be great to just hear a little bit more from you directly about your background. Thank you, Kristen. So I have had, uh, as many of you know, a long and wonderful relationship with resources for the future. In fact, um, MOTU, which is the uh, research institute I founded in New Zealand, was based very directly on resources for the future because I admired it so much. So it's wonderful in my new role as uh, chief economist at the Environmental Defence Fund to have the opportunity to really combine RFF strengths with EDF's very different ones. Um, so um, in terms of me, I'm absolutely passionate about trying to help shift the economic environment so that instead of economic actors causing the climate crisis and economic drivers pushing us towards climate crisis, we can instead help guide the shift towards a stable climate and a vital earth for everyone where everyone can thrive. And I'm also particularly passionate about the critical importance of working closely with people in the developing world who soon, by by 2030, will be doing 70% of global emissions. And and because they are producing 70% of global emissions, that means that the mitigation of those emissions has to happen in their countries. That doesn't mean that they have full responsibility for for making that, that happen or bearing the cost of that mitigation, but they need to be deeply involved in the actions involved. And, and I guess also because, you know, I am from New Zealand, um, maybe because I'm from such a little country, I do feel a particular affinity for small countries who can sometimes be left out of solutions and, and whose potential for leadership is sometimes underappreciated. So I think that makes me uh, a little different, uh, my background from, from a lot of the commentators working and, and people working in this space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that I was most excited to to bring you into this conversation too is because you do bring that um, different international background, that different international perspective. Obviously, New Zealand being a, a relatively small island state, it has its its own climate challenges in a way that I think can inform our conversation too. And so it's great to talk with someone who brings a a, a new perspective, a fresh perspective to the to the podcast. All right, so Susie. Thank you again for for kind of walking us through what's been happening so far. It, it's been a very busy week of announcements, I'd say, um, at the COP, with governments making commitments related to coal financing 
and the actual use of coal, um, commitments related to the control of methane emissions, halting and even reversing deforestation. Um, so some, you know, some major, again, commitments uh, that are coming out of the COP so far. And I guess I'd, I'd like to start with a question about that last issue, that issue of deforestation. As there have been some reports just this morning, uh, we're recording on here, here we are on November 5th, so about six days into the COP. And there have been some reports this morning that Indonesia, which is one of the key players in any conversation around deforestation, has has backed away from its collaborative international commitment made just a few days ago. And so I wondered if you could sort of say a little bit more about how that's unfolded and maybe reflect on what that says about the tension between climate commitments and development concerns faced by developing countries. Yes. So um, for EDF, halting tropical deforestation is, is one of our key missions and one of the things we're focusing on most heavily at COP. It's an opportunity that we only have in the short term because once the deforestation has happened, it takes an enormously long time to restore those ecosystems again. So we see this as, as a really, really urgent thing that we can do that will have long-term value. And, and our work particularly focuses on uh, strengthening the way carbon markets can support that. And one of the values of carbon markets is that it can reduce this tension between climate action development concerns. So a key question we face now is how those of us who are outside Indonesia can stand with those who are trying to help ordinary Indonesians and the climate. So the LEAF initiative, uh, which EDF has been deeply involved with, enables creation and trade of truly high-integrity carbon credits. And the recent commitment announced at the COP of nearly $20 billion from public and private sources towards avoiding tropical deforestation, a part of standing with the Indonesians. But we've got a really long way to go to make those funds work on the ground and scale up to the much larger resources that are urgently needed globally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the Indonesian environment minister said that forcing Indonesia to reach zero deforestation 2030 is clearly inappropriate and unfair. And, and in some ways, I, I agree with that. I'm forcing, actually forcing any country to achieve a goal like this. It's not only unfair, but it's actually impossible. Um, but I don't think that's what we're, we're really seeing here. Um, this, this was an agreement that Indonesia did sign up to. And what we're partly seeing is the inevitable internal differences and pressures as many in Indonesia are recognising the enormous value to people in Indonesia from managing their land better, avoiding massive exploitation, which doesn't always bring benefit to ordinary people. And where, but, but the problem is that people can't see a clear pathway towards better use of land that will bring greater development benefits than the current destruction. And of course, powerful interests are still reaping enormous financial gains from that destruction. And we're seeing all of that playing out in politics. That's not unusual relative to what you know we've seen in our own countries. She also really stressed that um, the massive development, and I'm quoting here, the massive development of President Jokowi's era must not stop in the name of carbon emissions. And I completely agree that development in Indonesia that improves the well-being of all Indonesian citizens, and particularly those who are still in poverty, does need to continue. Where I think we differ from what she's saying is in terms of the vision of what that development actually looks like. Because 
development doesn't have to involve ongoing deforestation. And there's a really lovely example in Mato Grosso in Brazil where they've shown how forest protection development can really go hand in hand. And this this example is compelling because it's on a large scale and, and it's in a developing country and it's really lasted for a long time. So just the little story is that as you know, many of us are aware, deforestation has been a huge issue in the Amazon for a long time. And in Mato Grosso, which is one of the states, deforestation was, was steadily rising and it reached over 18,000 square kilometers in 2004. But in that year, Brazil started its plan for prevention and control of deforestation. And over the next eight years, Mato Grosso reduced deforestation by 90%. And that didn't come at the cost of agricultural production. Soybean production went up by 50%. The number of cattle even increased by 10%. They did that through intensification of agriculture. So they had a strategy that dealt with the underlying causes of the deforestation and that really brought broad benefits. And the most compelling thing about this is that even though Bolsonaro in the last few years has really tried hard to, you know, to undermine these efforts, they haven't been lost. So this this is stuck. And that's the sort of change that, that we really want to see in, in Indonesia as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to follow up on something that you said right at the beginning of your commentary here too, which is about the idea that deforestation and development are, are coupled. Um, are the benefits to communities also more sustainable when deforestation is taken out of the equation? Yeah. So... Most developed countries have, have had a period of massive deforestation in the past as part of our development track. And some of that is, is essential if you know because our populations have grown and we need to feed people. But in most cases, it's massively overshot. We've cleared a whole lot of land that really we wish we hadn't cleared. And we regret that. And many, including New Zealand, where I'm from, have put a lot of effort over the last 50 or more years into restoring the forests that we destroyed in places where forest was actually the best use of the land. And we're also seeing this in developing countries. Costa Rica is an example where there's really huge efforts to reforest. China is putting an enormous effort into reforesting. Um, so we have a responsibility to help others avoid our mistakes that didn't lead to benefits to people but we also need to understand the pressures that they face. And we face those same pressures and we failed to address those in the past. So being realistic about this and, and working with them instead of sort of throwing rocks, I think is helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah. So we talked about one specific commitment, of course, which was related to to deforestation. But as I noted at the outset, there have been a number of announcements made to date and, and we're only... You know, we're only in week one, <laughs> but of the ones that have come out so far, um, which strike you as the most consequential? That's my part one of the question. But then I guess I also wanted to ask which ones strike you as, as most fragile, most unlikely to sort of either be able to um, come to fruition or might have more tenuous agreement um, from their country parties. So the ones that I find most useful and, and hence possibly consequential, are those that are really focused on practical implementation. 
development of concrete low emission transition strategies, addressing the barriers to implementing them and allowing real action going forward. And I think overall, this is where COPs need to go in future. And now that we are very close, I hope, to finalising the Paris Agreement rules, we can move from a focus really heavily on pledges, which can just be talk and greenwash, to really focusing on sharing experience and rewarding concrete action. And of course, calling out inaction as well. And that's not to say that we don't need more ambitious pledges, but a pledge on its own is not enough. So I'd like to focus on some of the clean energy announcements, not because these specific ones are necessarily the most important, but they offer some really interesting examples. So there are a couple that really focus on how to transition to a clean energy economy. So one is the Global Energy Alliance for People and the Planet, and that involves a $10 billion commitment from governments in the private sector, which sounds quite big, but needs to leverage a trillion dollars a year of climate investment. But what they're doing is really trying to create more favorable investment environments. And and it's working between private sector and public sector to to make that that happen, which I think is also a real shift um, that's been happening over the last five years or so to better combine the efforts of of government and private sector. Um, Another one that I think is is really interesting, but kind of geeky, but no, this is resources for the future. We're allowed to be geeky. I was going to say, our audience will eat it up. Please feel free. (laughs) Is, Is one called the New Net Zero World Initiative. And this is one where um, it's a heavily US-involved one, uh, with the Department of Energy working with a number of countries, including places like Nigeria, Egypt, and Chile. And they're really trying to develop highly tailored, actionable technology roadmaps. So really getting into the nitty-gritty of what needs to happen, how it would happen, what needs to be invested in, what technologies we need to develop or adapt. And that gets us out of the sort of high-level talk into the, well, what do we actually need to see happen? And that creates strategies that we can then fund, we can track implementation, etc. And so I think that sort of thing is, is terrifically helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other area is in the financing for transition. So we, we need to work out how we're going to get that transition to happen, but it also is going to need a huge amount of money. Um, so there's an example of that is the statement on international public support for the clean energy transition, which involves 26 signatories, including some really big ones. And that has three interesting and critical components. One is getting out of financing the bad investments, the ones that are inconsistent with, with the goals that we're trying to achieve. And that can be particularly powerful because it's pretty unambiguous you know you either are investing in these bad things or you're not it's not not there can be some ambiguity around gas investments but around coal there is no ambiguity anymore and 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 I think that's and and around a lot of exploration etc um second of course is getting more finance into the the clean energy transition and that's very important um though a little harder to know because uh, there are a lot of different sorts of investments involved there, but but terrifically useful. And the third is is encouraging others to follow suit, and this is really critical um, 
there has been a, a lot of hesitancy, um, particularly in the private sector, with some companies not wanting to try to influence government or take a leadership role within their sectors. That can be very, very uncomfortable. But only action by all of us, not only change our own behaviour, but also at the same time use our influence to support and encourage others to change, that's what creates a positive spiral for change. And I think something I'm realising more and more, we all have more power and influence than we think, even if it's only on a very personal scale. And it's so easy to say, I wish that they would do something. But this is not a they issue. This is an us issue. Mm-hmm. Well, and it does seem to me that um, last week, um, my guest Rachel Cletus and I spent some time talking about the importance of climate finance commitments and that, how that was really, really critical at this COP. And um, and as you just mentioned, you know, there's any initial commitments need to leverage much more significant, much larger commitments as well. But I guess I wanted to take that one step further and just ask um if this particular COP is successful at at generating pledges that really are designed to leverage very significant resources, a trillion dollars or more, um, can you remind myself and our listeners what still has to be determined in terms of how those resources would get allocated? Uh, is there is that a next step in the process? Is that sort of understood even as these conversations are ongoing? Or is there really a whole kind of mechanics of then getting money to developing countries that still has to be worked out? So that's a a challenging question, and and I'll sort of answer part of it. Um, So there are mechanisms already set up for distributing parts of that $100 billion uh, of of the Climate Finance Pledge. I am personally quite sceptical about how effective those can be. And, and I don't want to come across as as being too negative because I think if we have to do everything now. We're in that stage where we don't want to say no to anything. But when you look at a global scale at what is really required for developing countries to mitigate at an economically efficient rate, the modeling tells us that that requires about two to four billion tons of carbon units transferred, if, if you think about this through a market, a carbon market point of view, or if you think about this just in terms of money, that's $200 billion a year in terms of what is essentially grants or money transferred to developing countries, not loans, but money that is beneficial directly to those countries. And so $200 billion a year and the amount of capital that those payments then need to leverage is over well over a trillion a year. So $100 billion in climate finance, much of which may be loans, is only a drop in the bucket. So we need to really do much, much bigger. We need to scale up. And that's the scaling up can't come from governments. Governments just don't have that sort of money available. That's just not possible. But also how the money is used is is really critical. And that's one of the challenges with some of the existing mechanisms for getting that money out. Because will it just be like a lot of the aid in the past and really be used just to serve the interests of the donor countries? And that's a real risk. It won't necessarily bring the benefits and, and the changes we think. Will the donors 
if they are actually controlling the levers of how the money is used, will they actually share the power in how that money is used? And and then even if the donors are well-intentioned, will it actually lead to additional climate action? We don't have a good track record on that. Uh, a lot of money does go in in the same way as it's gone in for aid. You know, it doesn't necessarily lead to the impacts that we think it's going to be. And uh, so the payments, I think there are a few principles that we need to look for in order to get the money that is transferred to really make an impact. So the payments need to be results-based as far as possible. So they need to be tied to seeing actual change. And they need to be based on results that are at as large a scale as possible, and ideally up to the country level. Because otherwise, in a complex economic system, you might get gains in one place, but you'll tend to see those offset by losses elsewhere or over time. We look at transformational change. The only way you can see that really is is at the the system-wide level. And those payments also, they need to provide confidence and resources to developing countries. They need to know that the money is going to keep coming, that if it's going to be results-based, it really will arrive. They need to be getting uh, technical support and, and help to... Uh, develop learning networks that will allow them to make change. The challenge is not just finance. There are, even if the money is there in some instances, the politics or the technical challenges are just uh, are barriers as well. And, and they need help to leverage the private capital uh, because the government money is just never going to be enough. And some of the developing countries are not able to access private capital very easily. They're not necessarily able to negotiate very well with private capital uh, providers. So they need some support so they can engage in an, an equitable and effective way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and your reference to results-based finance makes me recollect a conversation that I think was quite prevalent in COP's past, which was related to... I'm going to get this wrong, but monitoring, reporting, and verification, or MRV, um, and this idea that in order to know if if investments are really results based, there has to be a robust MRV system in place, in order to to know that and to kind of reassure donors that their dollars are donor countries, I should say, that their dollars are going to good use, but not be so burdensome that as you, you know, as you wisely pointed out, that it becomes a a real um, blockade and barrier to countries who are receiving those funds actually being able to use them as they see fit. So is there any conversation at this COP that you're aware of that deals with MRV? Where do we where does where does the conversation on that yeah. stand? Transparency is is rising as probably the the one of the largest ongoing issues um, in terms of actually getting good action on the ground. And anyone who has done game theory at any level knows that you can't cooperate unless you can see what other people are doing. And the way that we see what other people are really doing and achieving is through national inventory uh, activity. And we need to have sound national inventories for more countries done more regularly and and keep improving them in quality. And countries are beginning to do that, but, but they need technical assistance in some cases to make that happen. And they need to be encouraged. That needs to be an ongoing effort uh, to make that sort of stuff visible. I want to take uh, a little bit of a, a, a sidetrack. I find it problematic when we talk about the countries who will be uh, providing some of the extra money as donors. 
And that suggests that this is, uh, it, it suggests something about the power relationships between the countries. And New Zealand will not be transferring money to a country like Chile uh, just out of altruism. We will be doing that because New Zealand wants a stable climate. This is more like trade. We're, we're buying these, these reductions. It's to the mutual benefit of everybody in the world in terms of climate. And, and I think framing it as donor and, and recipient suggests that, that the donor should have control over how that's used. And shifting that, that balance is, is actually critical to us solving this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. All right. Well, Susie, I've, I'm, we're almost at the end of our time here. Um, I wanted to ask you kind of one last substantive question. And I'm going to follow up on something that I asked uh, Dr. Cletus last podcast. And, and I put to her this question of uh, what would a successful COP look like? And so now that we're a week into this very critical meeting, I guess I'd like to pose that same question to you. And in particular, kind of given what's unfolded so far, what would you say that a, a successful COP looks like to you sort of from here on out? So a couple of different things. So first is a very big, but also quite small thing. We are very close to having the rule book established uh, for Paris. The outstanding part is the rules for international uh, carbon markets under Article 6. And I would love to see that agreed so we can draw a line under that and just get on with the implementation and in in my opinion most of the really important article 6 trading uh, is going to happen under what's called article 6.2 where the rules are are relatively simple and the principles are all relatively well agreed and understood already um, and the final agreement is just going to enable a lot of things that are already developing to happen without barriers. More broadly, in terms of what we'd like to see out of COP is, and, and I think this is the critical thing from, from COPs always, is that people come out feeling motivated, energized, uh, mobilized to get on with action and implementation and go back and fight for even more ambition and that they come out with new ideas of how they can do that. And it's it's about maintaining and building the, the ongoing momentum. Mm-hmm. I heard a really interesting phrase expressed by, a, I believe, a Politico reporter, and I apologize that I can't remember the name, but he, he mentioned that one of the most important currencies at a COP is hope, and that that is something that is can be extremely difficult to come by in the context of of climate change in general and in terms of climate negotiations, but actually, as he as he said, is, is a really critical currency here. So I think your sense that um, people need to feel energized, need to feel like they can sort of actualize some of the ideas that are coming up, uh, it really speaks to that sense that hope is an important currency uh, in these meetings and beyond. Can, can I add something into that? Um, when you say that, I can hear Greta Thunberg in the back of my head saying, you know, I don't want your hope and I'm not quoting her accurately here, but I think that that underneath that hope has to be trust, growing trust among all the actors across the countries that we are actually all in this together and that we're actually doing stuff. 
And out of that builds real hope, not not sort of fake hope. Right. The kind that's underpinned with action, not the kind that's underpinned with promises. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Well, Susie, this has been great. This has been really, I really appreciate it. Um, let me close with, with Top of the Stack, our regular feature. And certainly you're welcome to recommend anything you've been reading that relates to COP26. There's certainly a lot of content coming out related to the COP, but also anything else that might have been uh, of interest to you recently that's on the top of your stack. So anything you'd recommend to our listeners? So I'd like to step way down underneath COP something where it's probably hard to to draw a direct connection it's it's a wonderful book that i keep coming back to and thinking about and it's called tears of rangi uh, experiments across worlds and it's by an anthropologist in new zealand called ann salmon and what it is is an exploration of the very early days in new zealand where European ideas and particularly the idea of what's called the great chain of being whereas there there are these pictures where the white male humans are at the top where actually God is at the top and then the white male humans and it goes right down to the less and less important things down to nature at the very bottom and that was a very European way of thinking about the world and when they arrived in New Zealand they started to engage in really quite a serious way with Māori and engage in this idea collided with Māori conceptions of how humans and nature live together in this complex web of deep relationships and interdependence. And it's really about the relationships and not this sort of linear approach. And the book also then sort of takes that idea and helps us who aren't so deeply philosophical maybe see how that those ideas are now playing out in New Zealand as we are addressing these issues of climate change and water pollution and deep structural inequities of income and power and how the solutions to that in some ways require us to change those fundamental ways that we even think about the world so I found that a fascinating and uh, challenging approach which deeply resonates with me probably because I have lived in New Zealand in a place where these sorts of ideas have become a just a natural part of the way we think. So we're not even aware that it's a Maori concept, but we just think differently. And so I, I find that terrifically powerful. Um, and I would, it, it's not an easy read, but for those who are, are up for it, um, it, it's beautifully written and there's some, some fascinating um, stories and examples in there. Fantastic. Okay. Well, that sounds great. Um, well, Susie, thank you again. I hope you enjoy uh, the second week of the COP and what sort of understanding and watching what, what happens from here. And it's great to have your insights. It's been a pleasure. And I really thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. 
The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.